Today we're going to be discussing back to school and what it looks like for your child with autism. Okay, so just to start, I'm going to introduce Jeff Skibitsky. He's our president and founder. He's also a board certified behavior analyst, and he has over uh, 20 years of experience working in the field. And he will go on and introduce Dr. Carbone and Dr. Durant. Thank you, Anna. Um, so first of all, I just want to thank all the families, clinicians, and everybody from the community uh, who are joining us remotely tonight. Uh, this has been an unprecedented last four months. I think it's been stressful for all families, for all of the, the clinicians who are in attendance. Uh, we're all just trying to figure things out as, as things come along. And unfortunately, we're about to go into another step of that, which is what today's panel is really going to be looking at, is that back to school. And we have so many unanswered questions regarding this topic. And the focus of what we'll be doing isn't necessarily to give all the answers because there isn't anybody out there who understands COVID to the level to be able to answer all the questions. But what we hope to do is give a guide, be able to provoke some good thought uh, and discussion as far as being able to individualize each one of your child's plans and understanding the rationale and the reasoning that you might go with one decision versus another so that you can sit down, reflect, and make that decision. Um, I'm honored to be on the panel tonight with uh, two leaders of the field of autism in Utah and North Carolina. Um, I consider them valued partners, uh, colleagues, and friends. Um, and that's uh, from left to right. You'll see Dr. James Duran, at least on my screen, um, and Dr. Paul Carbone. Um, so I'll give a little bit of a, of a brief bio, and then uh, as, I, as I introduce them, they can wave uh, in, their, in their box. Um, so Dr. Carbone, uh, can you wave to us, Paul? There we go. Uh, he's a general pediatrician. Uh, he has uh, an interest in autism and developmental disabilities. He completed his residency at um, uh, UC San Diego in 97 and continued on and joined the faculty at the University of Utah in 2006 in the pediatric department. Um, so Paul works with children with disabilities. He's also in the academic world as well. He, uh, his primary clinical responsibilities allow him to work with uh, children with autism through a developmental, de uh, developmental program in Salt Lake City, and then a multidisciplinary program with the HOME program, which is a lifespan clinic, also in Salt Lake City. Um, additionally, uh, Dr. Carbone is the chairperson of the Council on Children with Disabilities Autism Subcommittee of the American Academy of Pediatrics, uh, and has lectured on the topic of ASD nationally and within the state of Utah, um, most notably is that uh, he was the keynote speaker for, um, oh, Paul, correct me if I'm wrong. Oh, I'm yes, let's get on with it. And you're I think about autism a lot, and I'm totally honored to be here. Uh, but I do suggest picking up Paul's book for all those parents out there, is that what every parent needs to know. Uh, it's, it's published through the AMA. It's a, it's a great book for parents to be able to understand kind of the steps through the process. Um, and then we also have Dr. James Durant. James, can you wave to the crew? There we go. Um, he's the lead physician for Novant Health Developmental and Behavioral Pediatrics in Charlotte, North Carolina. 
um, he did his uh, training at Charleston, in Charleston, South Carolina, at the University of South Carolina, um, and is currently the leader in establishing um, a uh, developmental pediatric behavioral health clinic um, through the Novant Health Center that is looking at being able to provide a whole multitude of services under one roof and kind of deliver the entire package of medical and behavioral health as well as, well as therapy and um, subspecialty uh, such as craniofacial surgery, audiology, occupational therapy. So it's a very uh, comprehensive clinic that they're building out there. And um, ABS is actually very excited to, to be a part of that clinic as it grows um, to be able to provide that ABA therapy. Um, so I, I, I welcome you both. I think that everybody's going to benefit from the knowledge that you're able to share and some of the insights, because I know that uh, the amount that you all probably read through on this issue so far and had to answer to families as they're coming through the clinics, um, I think that it gives a different perspective. So we can go ahead and get started and um, kind of look at that first question, which is the question of why is it that children of autism, why might they be more impacted by the change of school schedules? Um, is, uh, does it have something to do with the way that they, that they learn, the way that they process, the way that they experience events? Um, and I, I think I'll start by throwing this one out to uh, Dr. Durant and just kind of get your perspective of, is there a difference between what you might see for a, ch for a child who has developmental delays versus a child who's learning more typically? All right, well, you know, it's so, as you mentioned, individualized. I mean, so many kids with autism and other developmental disabilities um, learn differently. And, but what all kids usually do best with is consistency and structure. And what this COVID has done is thrown off everybody's consistency and structure of um, what they're uh, used to learning and the typical way of learning. And so switching over to virtual learning, um, you know, for some people it's been a struggle. For some people it has not been a struggle. And, um, but I do think a common denominator is that consistency um, is going to be important uh, going forward. And, um, you know, some kids, you know, especially with autism, can learn better more with their hands and more visually, um, you know, rather than verbally. And so um, I think, you know, for the parents at home thinking about, well, what are we going to do if we were stuck at home trying to teach and um, when we're not teachers? Uh you know, I think keeping your learning environment as distraction-free and clutter-free so you can have a consistent workspace, I think, is going to be important. And then, you know, being a part of any of the virtual lectures and trying to figure out ways that you can um, make any kind of learning visual and uh, more active, I think that will, you know, help children with autism and um but uh, yeah, I think it's, it's the biggest change is just that structure. There is the differences in the social interactions. There's the difference in um, learning from an authority figure of being a teacher or an authority figure being a parent. It's just it's just not the same. And so there's there's just huge adjustments. And so, you know, my hope is really if parents can start off uh, the year with a good bit of consistency and structure, meaning consistency with sleep, consistency with diet, and um, just helping it be the normal day routine. I think that'll help children um, with autism learn best. 
And uh, Dr. Carbone, I mean, are there are there components to a child's learning um, uh, who are who are children with autism that might be affected by staffing size, or might be affected by not having such close proximity to um, to a teacher if they're in a school setting? Are there components? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a good point, Jeff. I, I think what we see is, you know, easily half of all children with autism have something like ADHD, which means that they have difficulty paying attention and focusing. And so they benefit a lot of times from that one-on-one structure that they're getting perhaps through their IEP. Maybe they're, <clears throat> they have some pull-outs at school where they can get some extra resource help where they're really working in that one-on-one environment. They're not getting that. In fact, what we've seen probably from you know, last year when there, there was this, you know, um, reliance on remote learning is that a lot of uh, children with not only autism, but developmental disabilities, cognitive challenges that they just did not do well. I, I can't tell you the number of visits that I've had with families where they tell me, like, yeah, that didn't work. Like, he just had no interest in following along on a screen when somebody was trying to teach him it just wasn't a mode that worked for him and like like you said james some sometimes parents say well it actually worked out you know somewhat well but i think those are some of the attributes you know just paying attention focusing um being distractible um requiring some uh, pre-teaching some experiential learning some prompting um very structured environments that are hands-on that's tough to get through a distance technology isn't it yeah, and, and those are the things, uh, thanks uh, both uh, Dr. Grant and Dr. Carbone, but those are the components that I would say for a parent just to make sure that they're advocating for, that they're evaluating through the process as they're learning or kind of as they're researching the model that's going to work for their child is, do we have the, the consistency? Is there an opportunity for more intense learning, more repetition, more staff interaction? Um, is there the, the possibility for hands-on learning? Are we able to create those safety precautions so that we can do it with social distancing? Um, I think all of those things are key factors that we, that we have to just be aware of because there are unique differences for a lot of the children. And that's not all of them. There's going to be children that don't need all of that, but right. for a lot of the children to be able to kind of adapt to. Um, so I guess on that same note, um, the, the next question that comes to mind for me is, so if these are the concerns and you're looking at trying to decide as a parent how to approach the back-to-school um, conundrum, who are you bringing into that discussion? Who is it that you're trying to discuss with and understand all those nuances so that you can make the best decision for the moment? For the right now, which might be a temporary, but it's one that needs to be made. And I'll throw this one out to Dr. Carbone first. We'll switch roles. <laughs> well, I'm being told that I'm a little bit quiet, which is funny because nobody's ever told me that. But I'll try <laughs> to be a little bit louder. So, um, you know, I, I guess as a general pediatrician, I'll try to convince all the parents watching today that your pediatrician should be a part of that. Um, I think that. When you're thinking about, I mean, I guess, you know, we all need to be honest that there is, there is risk in going back to school. There's, there's no way that you can completely, completely take away risk. It can be mitigated, 
Um, and, and hopefully we'll talk a little bit about things that we can do for that. But I think talking to your pediatrician about being the best prepared in terms of your child's health, your physical and your, your child's physical and, and mental health for the school year is going to be important. So, you know, that starts with like the good old fashioned well child visit, your annual physical. Um, that's a time when you can go over with your pediatrician, you know, really important things like, you know, many people with autism have epilepsy. Well, so let's make sure that we've got our rescue medicines all uh, up to date, that we've got our asthma action plan uh, ready in case uh, we get sick at school. Um, the, probably the most important thing that I've been reading about in, in research lately is that um, we're all behind on our kids' vaccines. You know, shame on us. This is this is very important. So the last thing we need is going back to school and having a measles outbreak or a whooping cough outbreak, which could absolutely happen. Um, so, you know, by all means, uh, uh, get your vaccines up to date, get your flu vaccine. That's going to be really important this year. So there's a lot of really practical health uh, aspects that I think, you know, your pediatrician can offer you. Um as well as sort of talking to your pediatrician about your child's behavior. And then I, I know we'll be talking a little bit about our own mental uh, health and, and, and our children's mental health. But I read a study yesterday that said that uh, one in four parents across the country during this pandemic has said that their mental health has worsened. Um, this pandemic has taken a toll on all of us, right? And, uh, one in seven of parents are saying that their children's behavior is worsened. Now, these are just parents from across the country. Some of those will be parents of children with autism, and I'd be willing to bet that those families are challenged far more than, than parents of children without autism. So it's important to talk to your pediatrician about any concerns you have about behavior. You know, we, we, we treat co-occurring mental health conditions in children with autism. And so having visits over the summer or now when we can talk about, do we need to make a medication change? Um, do we need to make a plan to meet if after the first two weeks of school, things go really poorly? Um, I, I assume that all of us, parents, children, everybody's going to have a lot of anxiety going back, transitioning back to school, especially if that it includes some in-person um, learning experiences. So we're all going to, you know, the, 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 we've all been sort of, we've all kind of convinced our children that the world is a bit of a dangerous place. And now we're going to tell them like, okay, so we're like go back to school. And so there's going to be some anxiety there. Right. So I guess that would be cover the, the pediatrician aspect for it. There's yeah. some nuts and bolts too, that we go through. Whereas if, if the child has um, a certain group of conditions, things like diabetes, obesity, overweight, um, uh, serious neurologic conditions, that, those children are probably more at risk for getting serious illness from, from COVID-19. So, you know, those are discussions that I like to have with families before the school year starts rather than after, because those, those have been rich discussions with families about, well, you know, if he has epilepsy and he gets, and he gets a viral infection, what's, what's, what's going to happen? And I said, what usually happens when he gets a viral infection? Well, he gets a lot of seizures. Okay. So that's going to have to be put into the equation about whether we go back and how we go back. Yeah. And, and one of the things that, that you brought up there, uh, Dr. Carbone, um, kind of resonates for me. It's, 
It's the fact that right now you have a lot of a lot of families who probably are struggling with a lot of the same questions that their kids are going to have to deal with right now, which is how much do I put myself in different environments? Um, and that mental health strain that goes with that, because now they're responsible for their child as well in those same environments. I think those risk factors are, are very important to recognize and to, to kind of put into a, a larger weight on the scale of making decisions. But, um, and Dr. Durant, I'll throw this over to you, but when, when you're looking at trying to, to weigh the value of maintaining some of those supports as a family, um, are there are there components to that that you're said that you might say, hey, you know what? It's still very important to bring the team in to make sure that you're not suffering any of the regression, any of the gaps, because without support, the family doesn't have all the capabilities to to kind of work through all the challenges that maybe other families don't have to deal with. Right. All right. You know, Jeff. You know, during this whole time, you know the amount of therapy or interactions with your team, whether it be speech therapy, occupational therapy, or a behavior therapist has varied for the different families I've seen. Some have continued to do telehealth. Some have continued to do in-person. Um, you know, I think the biggest thing going forward to kind of help you with school is to, to really try to communicate, even if you can't see your team members in person. And so, you know, I definitely, I agree with Dr. Carbone, you know, talk to your pediatrician that's going to be so essential talking about risk factors to make your decisions and you know if your school physical i know in north carolina they're doing a waiver so you don't have to do your school physical form this year which uh, we definitely disagree with because um, your body changes and you still need that visit um, and it's an opportunity to talk about things but from a school perspective and uh, you know I think reaching out to your school psychologist early, like now, and saying, hey, you know, here are my concerns. Do we need to have a, a pre-virtual IEP meeting to discuss um, what we can kind of get in play uh, in terms of do we need to make any modifications? I'm getting a lot of questions about, you know, I have sensory sensitivities and I can't wear a mask all day. How do I handle that? And and I think that's something that you need to address with your team and reaching out to your school psychologist who kind of, if that's who kind of heads up your educational team to discuss, well, how are we going to do this with therapy or how are we going to do this academically? And because I really think for, for people, it's going to have to be customized. I don't think this is going to be a one size fits all. Um, and I think there, there should be, and there will be um, some choice in some of those matters, but it all starts with the communication and um, reaching out to your team members, whether it be through email and say, Hey, can we get on a quick FaceTime or, you know, I know you're tired of Zoom. Can we do one more Zoom and, and just talk about things? And um, I think that'll help ease some of your anxiety of what to expect once you, if you do walk into school at the start. Yeah, and I, I definitely appreciate that. Um, one of the things that I think is, is very important for any sort of clinical treatment is that continuity of care, the communication. Um, I know for us at ABS is that one of the things that we'd always want to do is be able to be a part of that conversation with the pediatrician. And would you be recommending that for the families to bring in the, the team to talk and maybe discuss this as a group? Because uh, especially with ABA, it's such a big part of their time commitment. 
Yeah, absolutely. And no, I mean, and from a physician standpoint, never think that you're burdening, burdening us with bringing people in. We love to hear different perspectives. We love, love to hear um, how you guys are doing and, and, um, and what we can kind of work together as a team. So yeah, I think that's an excellent idea, Jeff. Yeah, like Jeff, I'm having conversations a lot of times with just to give you an idea of how we pull in the team, I think is, um, we've already had a lot of questions in our clinic about mask exemptions. And we know that that's, you know, wearing a cloth face covering is one of those mitigation uh, strategies that's been advocated by Centers for Disease Control, the American Academy of Pediatrics, and everybody else. And so I, I'm trying to work with families and saying, well, um, Yes, there may be some people who have difficulty keeping masks on, and I'm sorry my audio isn't clear. Maybe what I'll do is I'll switch away from my AirPods. I'll try to get less technical. Is that better for everybody? Yeah, it's better, Paul. Because you need to hear me clearly. I have, I'm a font of, of good information here. So um, what was I saying? Oh, right. So, so working with families, instead of mask exemptions, let's consider mask wearing a life skill, just like anything else that we, that we teach. And, and wearing a mask has steps, right? You got to, you know, maybe at first you tolerate it in plain sight in front of you, and then maybe you, you can touch it. And then maybe you can put it around an ear. And then maybe you can put it around both ears. And maybe you can be reinforced for wearing it longer periods of time. That sounds like ABA to me. Um, you know, in deference to the BCTBA that's in front of me here. But so, you know, what I'm telling people is I'm referring them back to their, their, their ABA teams and saying, listen, let's, let's let them know that it's going to be expected probably this year that your child wears a mask and that's for everybody's safety. So rather than just exempting them and say that you can't, you know, oh, this person couldn't do that. There's no way that they could do that. Of course they can. Our kids show us that they can do things that we never thought they could do. This yeah. is a skill that they can master. So let's go back to the team and make this one of the priority sort of programs that we're working on. So that would be an example of trying to coordinate. I think that's, I think that's so important. And I think that also understanding those underlying health risks and all of that is important for the analysts to know and for the rest of the team. I mean, for the school team to really understand how that will impact. And that actually right. Right. to the next kind of um, – concept is that as we're going back, there's, there's basically right now um, from what we've been talking with our families about kind of three options as far as what's being offered out there. Um, one of them is, is going back in live in-person schooling. Um, and depending on what district and which state you're in, that schooling could be uh, two days a week. It could be four days a week. It could be uh, mornings or just afternoons. Um, it's all over the place, but that is one of the options out there. Um, so as we're, as we're looking at this, I'd love to get your, your all's input on each one of these situations, and that's the first one we'll start with, and then we'll get to the, uh, doing the online virtual schooling or just doing a more dedicated ABA program. Um, and so we'll start with that option one. Um, so for a lot of families, their school's announcing right now is that there's the potential, and unfortunately, this is like a rubber ball. It's bouncing back and forth, is that one day it might be a certain schedule, next day they might be reversing, um, but there is the potential of school being in person. Um, with that being said, 
um, there are a multitude of issues that, that we'd want to prepare the children for so they could be successful. Um, some of that is what Dr. Carbone was just mentioning, wearing the mask. Other components might be is the social distancing. Um, a lot of the children um, that, that we work with, um, they don't necessarily have the social boundaries. They don't understand the personal space as well as some of their peers. Um, the routines are going to drastically change. Um, that's a known fact. And in some high schools, they're even putting up barriers, plexiglass and hallways. Mm-hmm. Um, so I know that the compliance with mask wearing, hand washing, social distancing is going to be important. But what, what would you all be recommending from a, from a medical safety point of view on questions that families can ask their school to make sure that some of those safety precautions or the CDC guidelines or whatever it is that, that's kind of driving the decision-making and the research, what would you be suggesting that, that they're asking? I'll start with Dr. Grant. Well, you know, if, if that, that was uh, kind of what was imposed by our, by our school district, uh, full in school, um, I would, ask for what are our other options really and um inter- and invoke questions about idea and what's going to be the best um environment for my child and so um so i would bring that up um in north carolina we don't they don't allow um behavior technicians to go into the classroom um which i feel is a huge disservice to everyone in that classroom um so if at option one, it would mainly be in person with ABA therapy, probably after school in terms of how it would be in North Carolina. And, um, you know, I, I would, as Dr. Carbone was kind of talking about kind of as a life skill for masks, a life skill for, um, you know, washing hands 20 seconds and, uh, really work on that. As soon as you get there, you go wash your hands and, and, um, and really work on, hand washing multiple times throughout the day, I think is, is going to be important. And, um, and then just, uh, asking, so you would ask about sinks, you would ask about, uh, bathroom breaks, you would ask kind of about how that would work in terms of hand hygiene. Um, I would ask kind of about, well, what if a child is refusing to wear a mask and how would that be handled in my class, in that classroom? Um, and, uh, you know, I would really just, uh, I'd want to know all the details just about, how they're doing hygiene-wise, from riding the bus to the lunchroom to everything, to to feel comfortable before I would send send my child to to in-person school. And uh, Doctor, uh, thanks thanks very much for that, Doctor Duran. I think that I agree with a lot of, of what you're saying there. I think it's very important. Um, uh, Doctor Carbone, I'm going to throw this at you a little bit of a different way. Um, so with a lot of the children is that they're working on socialization, which is going to be challenging with some of these components in the classroom. They're going to be working on their communication and their educational skills. So what would the questions be to understand, yes, this is, this is the right option for my child as they're given choice to their schooling. What would be the questions you'd be asking that would, that would kind of dig into, is this going to benefit my child right now? Is it worth the risk? I mean, I guess, Jeff, I'd even back up a little bit more. Um, I, I try to take advantage of the relationship that I have with families over time. So, you know, there's a lot of, um, I think there's there's child characteristics, there's family characteristics, and there's school characteristics that I think all sort of get 
thrown into the mix in terms of whether or not we go back to in-person instruction, right? And so um, I, I guess, I mean, one of the things that I think can catch parents at this time is this trap that we've all been through, and that is that this thought that our children are very, very vulnerable, and so therefore they shouldn't be doing that. They should all just be, you know, in a, staying home in a bubble, right? That's, that's extreme, but, you know. And so I guess one thing I would, I try to push back with families a little bit is what are the, what are the, what are the risks from not going back to doing in-person instruction? Well, you don't get social interaction with your peers, your teachers. Um, you have, uh, that leads to social isolation. You probably are going to fall behind on some of your academic goals. And that can lead to anxiety, depression. We know that children who are staying home all the time are probably more at risk for all kinds of abuse. Some children really need school for, for food. 30 million kids get, you know, cost-free or low-cost lunch at school. So there's a lots, of, lots of factors in there, right, about whether we kind of push it and go that direction. Are you living at home with somebody who has a chronic condition, who's getting cancer chemotherapy? Okay, well, that's going to definitely impact whether you send your child back to school. Um, and then I guess to your question, you know, like what are the learning styles that my child has? And does, does he love that speech therapist so much at school that that's going to be that spark that gets him or her moving on those language goals? Or can that be reproduced um, through ABA at home? where the speech therapist at school shares the goals with, with the ABA provider and you work on them there. Um, there's a lot of, of, I guess, things to think about in terms of, um, of all of those, those factors that go involved in, in whether or not. But I think on some level, our, our kids deserve the dignity of risk like everybody else, right? We're all going out there and doing things safely. And so, the question is, is can you work with your school to figure out, like James is saying, what are the things that you're going to do to mitigate? How are we going to promote hand hygiene, physical distance, wearing masks and cohorting classes and staggering and dropping off at different times and not allowing extra people in the rooms and all those things that you can read about on the CDC website, which I recommend that all parents do because the CDC has great websites. There's actually a decision-making checklist for you versus, you know, in-home versus virtual uh, learning. So that's worthwhile to look at too. So there's those, those sorts of questions, but I think there's a lot of those other questions. Like in my house, there just happens to be a son of mine wandering around here right now who's 17, who's gonna be a senior in high school. He wants to go back to school, period. That's what he wants. He wants to be the senior. He has autism. But he deserves that, so we're going to do all we can in working with his school to make sure that that's the safe as it can be. Um, but in the end, that's what he really wants. So, you know, obviously, taking the cue from your child, what does your child want to do? Does your child want to go back to school? If if so, that's some that's a huge uh, thing to think about. So, I don't know if that answers your question or not too far. Off, off I think it does, um, and I think that actually brings up a follow up question that I'd have is. So as I'm looking at this, and say I have a child who's really looking at building some of those developmental skills um, and building the, the ability to communicate and interact and socialize, are there ways to be able to do that 
both in school? And then are there ways to replicate that socialization outside the school environment? Um, and I don't, uh, I'll start with you, Dr. Carbone, is that so if they're not getting that socialization or don't have that opportunity, are there community access? Are there resources that, that you'd say, hey, you know what, this is how I would do that in Utah. This is, this is ways that they could still benefit. Outside in the community. Well, um, and I, I, you know what, Jeff, I realize that we have great expertise with you and you're, you're missing out on answering all the questions that you could be helping us with too. But um, I guess I'd throw one thing out there, which is um, I think that all the data that we have on risk um, we know that it's mitigated outside. So I'm telling my patients to get outside. Um, can you, you know, tolerate uh, the risk, which is not zero, of having a play date with a preferred friend or another uh, family member's child um, and do that physically distance in the backyard um, with face masks if we get closer? Is that a way to get socialized? Well, I, I think it would be um, um, going on walks, doing all these things that I think we can do to continue to get socialized. Are there, there, there's lots of ways. I'm sure Jeff, you probably have about ten or eleven in your mind that 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 you're thinking of that you you all are working with in, in therapy with kids. I think I think the biggest thing that I've learned over this time is that uh, during the time of COVID, and not to not to kind of go off tangent, but we're flexible we're malleable people is that we've actually gotten better in some regards because we've been challenged. And I think that during this time is that all those things that you're talking about, I think there's a way to be able to create the environment for each of the kids. If you're creative and you're able to find the right solution. Um, And so that actually brings me to that next component, which I'm hearing more and more about. I'm hearing more people moving to trying to figure out how do I do this online schooling with community access? Um, because maybe that's that's where a family's comfort zone is. So yeah. you have certain children that are definitely going to benefit from going back to school. You have others that you are on the fence and they're saying, you know, we want the curriculum. We want that access to education. How do we do that? And I know the K-12 is a national program that can build some of these bridges. There's a lot of homeschool options out there. Um, Typically with something like this is that our children don't have always the ability to be able to access the virtual learning without supports. So it's how do you get those extra supports in there, which ABA can fill the gap, fortunately, because the Mental Health Parity Act is that insurance companies cannot refuse that additional support in the home to access uh, this particular service. So there's options out there. And I guess I'll go to Dr. Durant on this one and just kind of get your, get your understanding and kind of your concerns, whether it's the time commitment, how to get some of the access where you would think a child with autism might be missing out and where they might be advantaged right now with this option. Right. Well, you know, I, I think this is where, you know, ABA therapy is such a godsend right now um, because, you know, they're part of their, the behavior technicians, the BCBAs are basically part of the, these families' cores, you know, I mean, and so you're spending so much time with them, it's, it's part of the family. And so, um, you know, to be able to do these online instructions, um, whether it's through a Zoom or through a homeschool curriculum, 
you know, a behavior therapist there from a behavioral perspective gets to make it real and gets to make it functional. And, and so that's why I think it's ABA therapy is so essential. And, you know, ABA therapy would benefit um, all types, a, a lot of different types of behavioral issues. Um, and uh, it's a good thing that it's approved for autism. And, um, and I think it's going to be essential kind of going forward. You know, I talked about, you know, consistency and structure and a separate workplace um, where you're doing that, that work during the day, I think is essential. Um, I think looking into ways to, um, from a technological standpoint, to help keep you and your, your children focused um, are good. There's software out there that you can help limit the distractions you can put on your computer. One of them that I have my work computer that keeps me focused to do my notes is something called Focus Me. Um, and another one is called Freedom. Um, these are things that you can install on your computer that limits the distraction to um, getting on YouTube for 20 minutes that turns into two hours or, um, or getting on Discord for, for too long. And uh, utilizing those sort of things to set limits and structure with the tech part of it, I think is going to be helpful for you guys as a family. And if you have an Apple device, using the screen time um, settings uh, can be really, really helpful going forward. And so... Um, those are all things that I think are going to be needed for the structure part of the, the in-home learning. And, and I, I do think utilizing your ABA team uh, to help with that um, is going to be very, very important. Yeah. I, I, with I, autism I like YouTube. <laughs> <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> I mean, all kids like YouTube. Uh, can't get my daughters off of it. But um, I mean, I would, I would sort of add something there, Jeff. That maybe you know we all need to think about. And and I, I, you know, getting to work with families, I think it's really important that we all ask the question as well. Like, um, yes, if this is the way this child learns well, I've certainly met with some families, and they say he has never been more relaxed and happy since he doesn't have to go to school. He loves the online way. He's doing great, fine. But I think one thing to think about would be, how's that working for you? Um, you know, can you be home? Are you in one of those jobs where you can be flexible and be available? And you know, somebody's got to be there, right, to, to facilitate this learning. It's not like you just are going to put your child on there for hours at a time and just watch it happen. So, you know, I think thinking about caregivers, we always put ourselves last, but I think um, caregivers that are overly stressed can't be effective caregivers and can't um, implement behavior plans from their ABA teams, right? So, so would, on that note, on and I don't mean to uh, to cut no. you off because I do want to get back to what you're saying, but with the adaptability that uh, a lot of ABA organizations, ABS is is doing this right now with being able to do either in home or center based, where we could be a little bit more stringent on space, staffing size, CDC recommendations, and treat it like a medical facility. Um, I think that, that there are more options for families that are out there to be able to, to make the decision, do I want to do schooling or do I want to do the online schooling and have somebody help support that or do I want to do an ABA program without the feeling of I'm constricted because of environmental issues. And they can make it about their child's learning processes more frequently now. But that's just, uh, that's kind of the way that I've seen the field shift a little bit. Um, now, is, do, would you have a fear about your the a child 
getting further behind in academics or getting further behind in their learning if they chose an online model? I'm sure there's got to be some reasons, pros and cons behind that. Yeah, and I guess it's all individualized, right? Like there's some children that learn great from these methods. There's others that just simply don't. And I would, I guess, pose another question back to this question by saying, is that the most important thing right now? It may be to a family that we just, you know, um, he's at grade level. We want to stay there. He's accessing a regular education um, curriculum. Um, he's got a cohort of kids. She's got a cohort of kids that she she's really um, able to access or she falls further behind. She's going to be put in a more restrictive environment. I mean, there's lots of things to think about there. But for some of my families, that's not the most important question. Like, okay, we'll, we'll, we'll fall behind, but the most important thing for us as a family is that we're safe. <laughs> you know, some families actually think about that. Um, that that structured environment at school provides, you know, um, enough help uh, to prevent that. Um, he's happy. She's happy. At, 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 so, so those are other things I think I would I would throw out. But certainly some children are going to fall. We know that. You know, that that's definitely happening. Yeah. And I think that that's the that's the important part is to be able to prioritize. Yeah. And- there's going to be certain certain children that you can structure in even more individualized things right now where this might be a three-month period of growth that they could have in certain areas that they might not have had before. And I think it's, it's trying to really identify that and weighing pros and cons and discussing as a family with your... Sure. Yeah, that's a great point. I mean, maybe a family says, you know, we want to work on self-help skills. Uh, during this time. And that's the most important thing for her development right now. We want to get toilet trained. And this time at home provides us that opportunity to do that. You know, whatever it is, I think, you know, families going through that checklist of like, what's the most important thing? Um, This is a good point, Jeff. And so we, um, so we've actually hit the next two questions I was hoping to go over, but I do want to get into the third option right now, which um, Dr. Durant, you and I had a, had a good discussion about this um, offline before this, um, but it's, it's those children that during this time period might benefit from more intensive ABA therapy. Is a lot of our children um, aren't necessarily able to access the full prescription right now as it is because of time commitments. Um, what, would, what would your recommendation be at a time like this? You have probably more flexibility to be able to make decisions for yourself when you have a younger child or an older child who maybe just needs more adaptive skills. Yeah. What would the recommendation be on a, on a full-time ABA therapy program? Uh, yeah. Somebody? So, you know, I, I try to tell families with all these choices, we're in a season right now. You know, we're in a season of, of COVID that this isn't going to last. We have, the medicine technology that we are going to get a vaccine. We are going to get treatments that, um, and this is my personal opinion, but I think by Christmas time, we're going to have some, some help, whether it be through treatments or a vaccine. And um, so I try to say, you know, we've got about six months where let's look at it in that chunk. If it's different in six months, we'll, we'll look at it and address it, but let's think of it in this season. And, you know, in terms of considering full-time ABA therapy, you know, I do think it's, you know, 
it's, it, that might be a little bit more of an age-based rec- recommendation. Um, you know, the young kids where we know early intervention can have such a big impact, those two, three, four, five, six-year-olds, you know, I, I think full-time ABA is great. And, um, you know, I think there's, uh, you can't get that time back for ABA therapy. And um, so I think that's a great opportunity, you know, for the, for the older kids, you know, I think weighing your, your, you know, your strengths, your weaknesses of what you're doing at home versus what the school is doing. You know, I think that's going to be an individualized personal decision that none of us have the right answers for because we all have little bits of right. I know that's not black and white at all, but, you know, we're going to, even the experts have disagreements on kind of what we should be recommending. And, um, and so for the older kids, you just kind of have to see what works for you. And then at the end of the day, just say, you know, this isn't going to last forever. This is a season and we're going to get through this. And uh, Dr. Carbone, do you have um, any recommendations on this? It sounds like from what I'm hearing is every step of this is individualized. Every yeah, step one that's of exactly what I was thinking. You know, I'm, as I look at these, I remember... I'm remembering all the conversations I've had with families over the last couple of months. So I have to give you an example about a full-time ABA sort of potential model or a full-time away from school getting functional skills help, if we want to put it that way as well, is I have a patient who has very severe epilepsy and the family, you know, said, if he gets sick, it's just not good. And, um, and also in doing some, you know, further uh, chatting, you know, I don't know how much he gets out of school. This is a boy with more severe autism, who's nonverbal, who has a, a vision loss, and he loves the people that he works with individually, his therapists. He's 20, so he's in a post-high program. And the community outings that he has one-on-one with the agencies that that he's working with, ABA included, are what he really values. So then it was an easy decision for the family. It's like, yeah, we're just going to do that full time. We'll just get more hours from other agencies. We advocated to, you know, in our state, it's called DSPD, but in other states, it may be different. But we talked to the case manager and said, you know, can we increase this child's, this, this individual's community supported living hours during this time? Because this is what matters. So we did that. I had another family whose child had really bad chronic lung disease, a former premature infant who, you know, they've just, you know, respiratory illness would, would push this child to the wrong direction. He's very young and he's got emerging skills, but he's really, um, emotionally dysregulated right now and working on ABA skills around emotional regulation um, with occupational therapy and with his ABA program just sort of fit the bill. So that's, that's where we went with with them. I think it's just knowing families well and sort of talking and talking them through um, what seems to matter to them most. And that's, that's my take on this too, is that, you know, all of these models can work. Mm-hmm. these particular care models is dependent on what the child needs right now. And right now we're at a time where none of us know what's happening. No one knows, not, not one of us knows the health ramifications of, of COVID. I know that Dr. Durant, you mentioned that there's studies that have, uh, that have lasting effects that they're looking at with COVID with potential heart or um, other issues. And maybe you can elaborate on that, but um, 
I know that there's that there are components we don't know about, but there's also that risk factor that's this might be worth it for for me if I can do it safely, like Dr. Carbone was saying, and it's weighing that and trying to figure out what's best right now, knowing it's a temporary decision, but taking advantage of this time to do what's going to be best for your child for the long term. Um, Dr. Durant, do you mind uh, a just kind of going over some of the concerns that that are that are out there right now health wise, but also giving just kind of one statement on, on your final thought before we get to some questions. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, we're this virus is crazy. I mean, we are we're learning so much about it as we go. And um, and so we're just we're not sure always. And, you know, you're going to have some camps of people that say, hey, you know, most people around me are good. Let's let's go. Let's go to school. We're great. And then there's, you know, some of the more cautious people that are like, hey, we don't have all the information yet. Let's wait and hold off and, and, and be protective before kind of jumping into it. And, and then you've got a lot of people kind of right in the middle. Um, you know, I mean, and I'm not an expert on adult medicine and everything, but I, I mean, I did read an article earlier this week, um, you know, just about how the people that recover that are fine after coronavirus, um, they've looked at the heart and they've looked at parts of the body and, and there's some lasting effects there and that we don't really know fully what that means long-term and um, whether it's a good thing or bad thing, we just don't know yet. And so, um, you know, I, I am more in the cautious camp that I think safety and this is a season this is going to end and um, that we just need to make the best of these six months and it's not going to be perfect. Um, and so just family, just know that we know how much you love your children and we know how much you've got a good, great heart for them and you want to do the best. I, I really think if you weigh your options, you know, and you make a decision, stick with it, be consistent with it, and, and uh, you know, just trust that, you know, you've taken the data in and you know what you're doing and you're getting good guidance from um, the people around you. But, um, but yeah, it, it's frustrating because it is not black and white. And, um, and uh, that's why you're at the end of the day going to have to make that decision. And, um, and it's, it's a tough decision, but, uh, but I do think this is short term. This is going to be a season and we're going to get better and recover. And Dr. Carbone, same kind of last thoughts, anything that you would like to add, any sort of insight that you have? Well, I've never been known for profound um, concluding remarks, but I think a couple things come to mind. This is a good like point counterpoint that, that developed here, which is kind of neat. So I, you know, I think it's easy for us in the medical profession to see these, you know, rare but significant cases of illness from something and be awed by all the, you know, to, you know, we're, we're following case rates every day. And, you know, these are real people who are being really affected by this virus. So I think it's easy to kind of pull back and say, let's just all like, you know, like hunker down. And there's certainly nothing wrong with that. I think we've talked about sort of the rationale behind that, but I've, I think I've been impressed um, by reading the American Academy of Pediatrics sort of guidance on this particular issue, which I maybe we can post that for parents or the link, as well as the CDC. Both organizations are strongly advocating some form of students being physically present in school. And I know that when you have a child with disability, it feels like that's compounded, the risk is. And for certain groups of children with disabilities, like those with 
you know, some of those conditions that we talked about, I think there is reason to be very cautious, but in others, maybe less so. And we know that there's potentially some detriment from not being in school. So I guess, you know, that's a nice, we're, we're, James and I are kind of bookended here on this one a little bit. I'm not certainly advocating for a one size fits all like we, we talked about earlier, but um, I think that's, that's sort of my, my, my final thought. And, and everybody obviously stay calm, talk to your kids a lot about um, COVID-19 and try to limit their screen time and access to all this stuff because it causes us all a bunch of anxiety. Um, I'm on a media holiday over the last two days and I've never been more like languid and calm. Um, uh, <laughs> I guess that's another sort of pearl of wisdom maybe that I can come up with. Yeah. And I, I think, I think what everybody is saying is that, is that regardless of what choice is being made is bring in a variety of, of thoughts, bring in um, a lot of players to help process through that decision and be consistent, make sure that what you're doing has a way for the, for the child to be able to continue and access and maintain consistency during the time period. So prepare them, help them get the routines, um, and then make sure that the teaching is going to be effective. Um, and find a way to be able to evaluate that over time and use your team to help you do that. Um, Anna, let's, uh, let's move this to a couple questions because I think we've got about five minutes left and I don't want to miss out on some of the questions and um, hopefully we can, we can get to at least three of them. Absolutely. So here's the first one. They say, my child's high school does not allow for an outside RBT, BCABA, or BCBA to provide services at the school. Is there a recommendation that you can make to remedy this? Ah, so that's a, that's a challenge right now. Um, uh, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start with kind of, I do a lot of advocacy work on and access to care work. And what I will say is that one of the issues is the parent is allowed us typically. <coughs> have as much support as you want. <coughs> your team. But as a parent, if you go in there educated, understand what your rights are, understand IDEA, understand that your insurance company through mental health parity cannot uh, disallow this. Understand that there are components to ADA that if, uh, if your child isn't able to access the, the schooling or needs equipment, which, uh, which behavioral supports might be that. The school should figure out a way to supply it or they should have somebody from the outside to come in to be able to help supply it in the same way you would a wheelchair, the same way you would any other equipment. Um, it's, it's figuring out all of those rights and, and really working through it. In Utah, there's a disability law center. There's the same thing out in North Carolina and California has a very large one um, that can help a parent to really understand what those components are and how to advocate for themselves and then use their clinicians as support. Uh, does uh, Dr. Carbone, Dr. Durant, do you have anything else to add on that? Um, I mean, I, I always feel uh, a little point counterpoint as well, I guess. I always feel like you get more bees with honey or honey with bees. I can never remember which direction that, 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 that goes. But in terms of, you know, sometimes this causes a lot of stress for families. Like, you know, they won't let me do this. And so, you know, you need to write a letter and tell them to do this. And so what I, the way I try to, Approach these issues is, you know, maybe it's good if, if I talk to somebody there at your school and we talk as respectful team members and I try to do my best to say, why would this benefit you as a school? I think the reason why sometimes schools get defensive with, 
um, with other people coming in is they they feel uh, like they're being one-upped, you know, like somebody's going to show us up on some behavioral prowess, or they feel like, oh my gosh, this person's going to advocate for more services than we can possibly deliver. So I think if you try to get to the cause of why somebody is hesitant to do something, and then you can convince them like, wow, you know, this behavior analyst will really help you in minimizing maladaptive behaviors at school. And I think it'll go more smoothly for everybody. So if you can convince somebody that there's utility in doing it, sometimes you can have some success as well. Although I do agree with Jeff that sometimes you need to sort of like know your rights and go that direction as well. And I, I agree with you, Paul, is that the, I mean, you should be working through it as a team. And, and there are parent advocates that are out there yeah. to help support that conversation. Yeah. And that yeah, family voices, people like that, the state to state. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and you mentioned Utah is that you can utilize the Utah Parent Center. Yeah. Um, uh, Dr. Duran, in North Carolina, and who would you be recommending to help work through the advocacy sort of side of this to help families? You know, I would, I would honestly write your local representative. Because, um, I, I mean, this is, that's what we as providers are trying to do um, to allow it to happen. And because there is kind of a, a wall there, um, at least in the big county that I'm, that I'm in. And so... Um, your local representative, your school board. Um, I, I don't think it hurts to, to write a letter and I don't think it hurts to try to become friends with some of them and, and, uh, and just kind of talk so they can hear your story a little bit. And, um, you know, I think Dr. Carbone made a great, great analogy and, and uh, way to kind of explain to them why it's important to you. Because that old saying, you know, I don't, what is it? I don't care how much you know until I know how much you care. Um, you know, they need to know how much you care and then they'll know a little bit more about your needs and your wants and, and see if they can make something happen. But, um, it is, that's a tough thing that we, we struggle with here in North Carolina as well. Yeah. And I, I, I couldn't agree with both of you all more. And I mean, the, the benefit if, if you are having to choose or, or feel like it's the best option for online schooling or ABA therapy right now is that, um, this same battle wouldn't have to be fought. It's for the children who really want to get into the school with those supports, who need those supports outside, that maybe some of that coaching would occur and make you advocating for yourself. Um, Anna, do you have another question? Yes. Um, I would like to say that we, we have reached time, though. So if it's okay, it, we can extend a few more minutes. But I would like to propose that any question that was answered or asked, we can go on ahead and answer through um, our website. So if we don't get to all of the questions, we can go on ahead and take the time to respond thoroughly and post them publicly. Let's, let's do that, Anna. And let's, let's answer one more question. And uh, I'll put the onus on you to make that choice. <laughs> I don't want to hold anybody okay. up, but because uh, I do appreciate Dr. Carbone and Dr. Durant hopping on. I know it's really late in North Carolina. So. Right. So there's, there is a short question here. Um, they said, I was told they wouldn't make students with disabilities uh, wear masks. Do you have thoughts on this? Um, I, uh, right now, all of these things are up in the air. Um, I don't think that the news today is the news today. And it might change again tomorrow. And yesterday, we probably heard something different. Um, I would definitely reach out to your school, um, to your uh, local school board, and to your principal of your school to understand how they're implementing at the district level. Um, But I'd I'd actually, uh, I would like to hear Dr. Carbone and Dr. Durant on 
whether or not this this is something that um, the parent should really kind of take a step back and say, you know, should I just teach my child to wear the mask? Is it worth the value or is it something that maybe we don't need? Uh, so Dr. Carbone, I'll let it go to you first. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I tend to agree with that. We talked about that, that I think wearing a mask these days is a life skill. So um, there certainly are going to be some children who just, despite our best efforts, are not going to wear masks. I haven't uh, heard at all that they would be excluded. I don't think that that would be the case. So I think you will probably see some children with disabilities who just simply cannot wear masks at, at school. Um, and then I think it becomes really important for schools to work with parents about, well, that's one tenant of mitigation, right? But the other one is, well, we can still do hand hygiene. We can still have some physical distance. Can we do some instruction outside? Can we cohort this class so that, you know, all of these other things all add up to safety. And so, you know, we, we don't need to put all our eggs in one basket. But again, I would default back to let's work on that mask wearing because that's going to get you access to your community, right? That's what we want. We want this person to access all the things that they love about their community. So if they really want to go to school, they're going to be probably a lot more welcome if they can wear a mask. And Dr. Durant, anything that you want to add on that? Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think that's a great thing that I'm going to be talking to my patients about, um, about mask as a life skill and practicing that just as you would practice any other skill before school starts. So, I mean, I think that's a great one. You know, if you're hung up on the kids, um, some kids aren't going to be wearing a mask and everything, you know, probably some kids I don't think are going to be wearing a mask, honestly. Um, you know, we require masks in our office and they just can't keep them on and they, they rip them off. And it's, it is, it's going to be tough. Um, it really, it is. And, and I do think all kids should wear masks and, and we're not writing exemption letters and um, because we do think it should be a life skill and you should try to do it. But, um, you know, I, I do think based on what I've seen so far, it, it's going to be tough to have all kids wearing masks. And, um, and that's just a realistic uh, thought opinion from me. Um, and, uh, and I think you just kind of have to weigh that. Yeah, so it sounds like it's something to tackle, but just to have a, a really good practical understanding that 100% compliance might not be something that's out there. Um, and it might be because of medical um, reasons, or it might just be is that their kid going to be taking them off throughout the day until somebody tells them to put it back on. So um, it's just putting that into perspective. Well, I don't want to hold anybody up any longer. I, I appreciate both of you all, uh, Dr. Carbone, Dr. Durant, for joining us today. All the families who came, all the clinicians, thank you so much. Um, I feel smarter after listening to you all. So I think that I came away with something. Um, but uh, once again, thanks so much. And hopefully we can do this again sometime. Not about COVID. <laughs> Everybody stay safe and stay healthy. All right. Thanks. See you.